You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 79, The Battle of Quebec. When we left off last week, General Montgomery and Colonel Arnold had finally combined their forces just upriver from Quebec City. Their combined force of around 1,100 was smaller than each individual force had been at the outset of their marches a few months earlier. Disease and illness related to exposure were big reasons for the loss of men. Many of their forces had simply given up and gone home. Montgomery lost about half of his remaining army after he took Montreal. Arnold had lost about one-third of his force when one of his brigades had given up in the wilderness and simply turned around and went back to Boston. Even worse, most of the men who had held out this long looked forward to the end of the year when their enlistments ended and they too could go home. In less than a month, the army might dissolve away without a shot being fired. They could not count on Washington to send more reinforcements. He was facing his own end-of-the-year deadline when the Continental Army around Boston turned into a group of 15,000 civilians. Montgomery and Arnold, though, were not men who would sit around long, especially when there was a looming deadline. By December 6th, the Continental Army was back surrounding Quebec. Montgomery again offered terms if the city surrendered, but they refused. Next, the Continentals tried to communicate directly with the inhabitants inside Quebec City by shooting arrows over the wall with notes attached to them. After a few days, Montgomery began using his artillery on the city. But with only a few small cannons, it was not enough to do any real damage, especially after the British used their own artillery to take out the largest Continental battery. The only effective tool that intimidated the defenders was Morgan's rifle companies. They acted as snipers, taking out anyone who stood on the walls of the city long enough to become a target. Inside the city, Governor Carleton felt secure. His Highlander regiment and Navy sailors whipped up the citizenry into an effective militia force. Carleton now had about 1,800 men ready to defend the city against probably less than 1,200 attackers who would have to charge entrenched enemy lines and artillery. He would not make the mistake the French had made during the French and Indian War and leave the safety of the city walls. Even with his superior force, Carleton was content to remain behind his walls and force the enemy to attack. Unable to get the city to surrender, unable to mount an artillery barrage and storm the walls, and unable to field an army long enough for a siege, Montgomery found himself with only a long-shot solution, 
wait for a stormy night when the enemy was not ready, and then storm the walls with scaling ladders and take the city. Knowing they had to make an attack before the end of the month, Montgomery and Arnold waited for a stormy night, hoping it would give them enough cover to get over the walls and into the city. After a few tense days of waiting, a heavy snow began to fall on December 27th. As the army prepared to attack, the snow suddenly stopped. After conferring with his officers, Montgomery called off the assault. That was actually a good decision. A continental deserter had alerted the defenders to the planned attack. They were ready and waiting. After Montgomery saw reinforcements on the wall right where he planned to attack, he knew he had to change his plan. Quebec City consisted of two parts. The upper town on the west side faced the Plains of Abraham. This was where any large army would have to attack. Therefore, the defenders had their highest walls and most of their artillery in this section. Behind Upper Town was the Lower Town. That's where most of the civilian population lived. This area had walls, not quite as high as those in Upper Town, but most of Lower Town was surrounded by the St. Lawrence and St. Charles rivers. There was no room to put a large military force on the narrow strip of land between the walls and the rivers. General Montgomery had originally planned a direct assault from the Plains of Abraham against the upper town. After calling off the December 27th attack, Montgomery decided he would only send a small force against the upper town as a feint. While less than 200 men launched a cannon and rocket attack against the main gate, Arnold would take a force to the north, moving along the wall, and attack the lower town from the north side. Montgomery would move along the southern wall and attack the lower town from the south side. If all went as planned, the forces would meet in the middle and then slowly work their way through town, past a series of barricades, until they reached the upper town. From there, the combined force could either storm the upper town walls or compel a surrender. Finally, on the night of December 30th, another storm rolled in. Montgomery put his plan in motion at around 5 a.m. on the morning of December 31st. As Arnold and Montgomery both moved into position, the diversion force launched an assault against the main gate on the western side of the city. They hoped to set the gates on fire, diverting attention from the main attacks on the other side of town. They also launched rockets against the main gates. The rockets were not only an attempt to divert the enemy's attention, they were a signal for Arnold and Montgomery to both begin their attacks at the same time. General Montgomery led his men along a rocky and narrow path along the south side of the city. They reached the outer barricades and found them unmanned. They moved across the field towards the first buildings where they found the defenders the British had established a line of defense using sailors and militia to occupy several houses with both muskets and cannon containing grape shot. A grape shot essentially turns a cannon into a giant shotgun, scattering dozens of metal balls all over a field of fire. It's designed to take out an entire line of soldiers. Montgomery led the advance force directly against the enemy line. The defenders held their fire until Montgomery and his men were within 50 yards of their lines, then opened fire all at once 
with devastating effects. Most of the attackers fell to the ground, dead or wounded. General Montgomery, who had been out in front leading the charge, was hit in at least three places and died instantly. The first Continental Army general to give his life. Montgomery would become a hero to the Patriot cause, lauded for his bravery and sacrifice. He would never learn that the Continental Congress had already promoted him to Major General weeks earlier. He died before the news reached him. A decade later, when Philadelphia County created a new county out of its western half, the state named it Montgomery County in honor of the general. Montgomery, Alabama, and a host of other localities are also named for this fallen hero. Despite his heroics, that cold morning, Montgomery's corpse lay dead on the field and his men needed a new leader. The few men in the advance force who were not hit quickly ran back toward the outer barricades and fled the field. Among the survivors was Captain Aaron Burr, who had, you may recall, left Arnold to take a commission and serve as Montgomery's aide-de-camp. With Montgomery dead, command of the southern attack fell to Lieutenant Colonel Donald Campbell, who was bringing up a second line of attackers. Now, had Campbell renewed the attack, he might have succeeded. The militia defending against the southern assault were ready to run away. Their regular officers had to keep them on the lines at gunpoint. A second charge might have been enough to chase them away. Then again, a second attack might have to suffer a second deadly volley like the one that took out General Montgomery. Campbell decided not to take the gamble, turned his men around, and retreated back the same narrow trail that they had taken to get there. The southern assault was over. At the same time General Montgomery was moving along the south side of the city to begin his attack, Colonel Arnold was moving his force along a similar narrow path on the north side of the city, following the bank of the St. Charles River. Arnold led the column, which initially escaped notice of the defenders. However, after part of the force had passed by a section of the wall, the defenders noticed the attackers slipping by and opened fire. The defenders killed a few Continentals who continued to rush past, but now the element of surprise was gone. Arnold had brought with him a small field cannon to use against the enemy in his main assault. He hoped to blast at the enemy while Captain Morgan and his riflemen slipped around the side where they could open up a second line of fire. But with the column under fire while still getting into position, the cannon got stuck in the mud. Its crew left it behind and continued forward without it. Without a cannon, Arnold decided that a frontal attack was his best option. Like Montgomery, Arnold charged an embedded line of soldiers armed with muskets and cannon. Like Montgomery, Arnold led the charge and was shot in the first volley. Unlike Montgomery, Arnold only took a shot to the leg and would survive. Still, he could not continue and turned over command to Morgan. Unlike Montgomery's second-in-command, Morgan charged forward, inspiring the men to attack. He led the assault, with his attackers scaling ladders up a wall in the face of enemy fire. They scattered the defenders and took about a hundred prisoners. As the Patriots swarmed into the streets of the lower town, they saw a second barricade, unmanned and open, 
leading into the upper town. Morgan attempted to advance his men toward the barricade, but they would not go. Only a dozen of them had advanced past the first barricade. The rest said they needed to wait for a larger force before simply running into a part of town that probably contained over a thousand defenders. Reinforcements were on the way, but seemed to be getting lost on the docks and in the streets of Quebec. Remember, it was still night, in the middle of a snowstorm, and in an unfamiliar town. Before Morgan could get a large enough force, the British defenders in Upper Town sent 30 Highlanders to put some backbone into the 200 militia who were supposed to be defending the second barricade. Morgan's attackers now found themselves stuck in street fighting, with defenders picking them off from the upper floors of houses as they marched through the streets. The defenders quickly realized that the attack on the main gate had been a feint, and that Montgomery's attack from the south was over. They could focus their attention on Morgan's soldiers, now scattered all over Lower Town. The defenders circled around and recaptured the first barricade that Morgan's men had already taken. Now, the Patriots were caught in the city between the first and second barricades, with nowhere to go. House-to-house fighting continued for hours as soldiers began to take refuge inside the houses. As morning broke, the Patriots found themselves trapped, outnumbered, and running out of ammunition. Morgan tried to order a retreat, but most of the men refused to leave the safety of the houses. If they did, they would have to run a gauntlet of fire down the street, only to face a wall of defenders to break out of the city walls again. As it was now daylight, and a few hundred patriots trapped in the city were surrounded by much larger numbers of mostly sailors and militia, eventually almost all of them surrendered, except for Morgan himself. The British trapped Morgan inside a house and surrounded him in a back room. He refused to give up, though, slashing his sword at anyone who would come near him. Eventually, a Catholic priest came into the house, and Morgan finally, reluctantly, turned over his sword to the priest. By late morning, the fighting was over. As usual, casualty reports differ. The Patriots suffered about 50 dead and another 40 wounded. Well over 400, though, were taken prisoner, almost all of the attack force led by Arnold and Morgan. The defenders suffered very little. Official reports claim only 5 killed and 14 wounded, but other estimates indicate that 40 or 50 died or suffered from very serious injuries. With nearly half the Patriot force now killed, wounded, or captured, Carlton had about a three-to-one advantage over the remaining enemy outside his walls. Even so, he would not venture out of the city to finish off the remaining Continentals. With General Montgomery's death, Colonel Arnold took command of the remaining force of about 800 men still surrounding Quebec, including several hundred Canadians and Indians who had joined the Patriot side. Arnold had no intention of retreating or even withdrawing. His men, however, had different ideas. Most of their enlistments expired on January 1, 1776. So following this loss, more than 100 simply started to head home. Arnold, still in a field hospital, having his wounded leg treated, sent a message to General Wooster back in Montreal 
asking that he stop these men and force them to return to their posts. Arnold also called for more reinforcements so they could mount another attack on the city. Wooster did nothing, though, and Arnold's force soon fell to under 600. Wooster had no extra troops. He only had about 600 men himself, what he judged barely enough to keep Montreal under control. He feared Indian attacks or a possible French uprising if the bulk of his troops left the city. Word eventually got back to General Schuyler in Albany, to General Washington in Boston, and to the Congress in Philadelphia. All were stunned by the loss, as well as the death of General Montgomery. None of them, however, had reinforcements to send Arnold. Congress called on Pennsylvania and New Jersey to raise more regiments and send them to Quebec. But that would take months. Washington was watching his own army around Boston dissolve as enlistments ended there. Schuyler was still worried about British agents organizing the Iroquois against the Patriot forces in New York. He did get Colonel Seth Warner to collect a few hundred Green Mountain boys to send back to Quebec, but that was nowhere near enough to launch another attack, and the first reinforcements did not arrive for nearly a month. After six weeks, Congress voted to send a three-man commission headed by Benjamin Franklin up to Canada to make whatever political or military decisions they deemed helpful to the cause. So, rather than getting an army of reinforcements, Colonel Arnold would be getting a civilian oversight board to question everything he was doing. For most of the winter, Arnold got no real military support at all. As his leg wound healed, his men maintained their siege, even though it seemed obvious to Arnold that the British could probably march out of the city and destroy his force with relative ease. British General Carleton, though, was playing his hand very conservatively. He only had to hold out until spring when the British Navy would send an expected relief force up the St. Lawrence River to secure Quebec, retake Montreal, and probably begin an invasion of New York. Carleton was content to remain inside the city walls and let the Patriot rabble sit outside during an extremely cold and miserable winter. While Arnold never got the reinforcements he wanted, Congress recognized his bravery and leadership ability. In January, Congress promoted him to Brigadier General. Despite his bravery in battle, Arnold still wasn't playing nice with most of his fellow officers. Having taken over the remnants of Montgomery's army, Major John Brown and Colonel James Easton, two of his old enemies, fell under his command once again. Arnold felt that both men had slandered his reputation in the political wrangling after the fall of Fort Ticonderoga the prior year. Brown came to General Arnold, saying that General Montgomery had promised him a promotion before his death. Arnold basically responded, Oh well, it's a shame that he's dead, cause I'm sure not giving you one. Arnold accused both men of looting the baggage of captured British officers at Montreal. Brown demanded a court-martial to defend his name, but Arnold refused to give him one. Arnold also criticized Colonel Seth Warner, another enemy in the fight for credit over Ticonderoga. 
Warner had allowed his troops to inoculate themselves against smallpox, even though he had received orders not to do this. Since the inoculations at the time usually made one sick with a weak version of smallpox for several weeks, and the men had only signed up for three months of duty, most of them were on sick duty for almost the entire time they were stationed in Quebec. Arnold also complained about the lack of support from his superior, General Wooster, who failed to send him reinforcements or resources. Wooster, you may recall, was the man that Captain Arnold had threatened to shoot a few days after Lexington when Wooster refused to give his company ammunition to march to Cambridge. So, General Arnold had secured a reputation as a brave fighter and fearless leader in battle under harsh conditions in the field. But at the same time, he seemed to do his best to make enemies among his fellow officers and hold grudges forever. Next week, at the same time Montgomery and Arnold were trying to take Quebec, a young bookstore owner named Henry Knox brings an artillery cache from Fort Ticonderoga back to Boston. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, welcome back to another American Revolution podcast book recommendation. I wanted to take a moment today to thank everyone who follows me on Twitter. I use the handle at AmRevPodcast. If you use Twitter and don't already follow me, please do. I usually only tweet about new episodes and a few other American Revolution-related topics, usually no more than once a day, so don't worry about me overloading your Twitter feed. I will also sometimes recommend other podcasts or other historical books or resources. I try to avoid drifting into discussions of modern politics or other issues unrelated to the revolution, or at least to history generally. If you do follow me, it would be a help if you retreat me to your followers to help get the word out about the American Revolution podcast. All right, today's episode covered the American attack on Quebec at the end of 1775. Even though it really seemed like a doomed assault from the beginning, I'm really amazed at how close it came to succeeding. If General Montgomery had not died in the initial assault, or if his second-in-command had had a little more daring, the two prongs of the attack might have been enough to actually take the city but it was not to be, and the attack became a failure. I did suggest at one point that if it had succeeded, 
Canada might today be part of the United States, and that certainly is a possibility. But even if it had succeeded, when the British sent a new army of thousands of reinforcements the next spring, it's unlikely the city would have held anyway. So alternative histories are fun to consider, but given how many variables there are, there's really no way to tell how things would have changed. This event, however, was really one of those pivotal moments and in this case really went against the Americans. I've already recommended a number of books about the war in Canada, but I'm going to go with another one today. The Battle for the 14th Colony, America's War of Liberation in Canada, 1774-1776, by Mark Anderson. Several of my earlier book recommendations cover only portions of the Quebec campaign. Anderson's book, which was first published in 2013, is a little broader. It covers the years leading up to the war, but focuses mostly on the events of 1775 and 76, going through all the planning and attempts to take Canada through the period when the British reinforcements really do push the Continentals completely out of Canada. At over 400 pages, the book is pretty comprehensive, and can get into sufficient detail about the events of the campaign. It gives a good overall picture of the people and events involved. The author, Anderson, is a retired Air Force officer. He's also written a second book about the Quebec campaign, which uses letters and journals to delve even more deeply into those same events. The second book is entitled The Invasion of Canada by the Americans, 1775-1776, to as told through Jean-Baptiste Bedeau's Three Rivers Journal and New York Captain William Goforth's letters. It is, as the title suggests, a focus on those primary source journals and letters. It makes a great supplement, in my opinion, to the first book, but you will want to start with Anderson's first book, The Battle for the Fourteenth Colony. I've tried to cover the candidate campaign pretty well in the podcast so far, and We will revisit it in a few more episodes coming up in the future. But, of course, if you want to delve deeper into the Quebec campaign, a detailed book is always better than a podcast, and you may want to consider Anderson's book if you want that level of detail. As always, there's a link to the book on my website, www.amrevpodcast.com. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another... American Revolution Podcast.